Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Good grades just aren't enough anymore in the grand rat race of education. In some East Asian countries, the competitiveness has become so all-consuming that governments are having to step in. And there's a sense among many critics that novels these days should tackle big contemporary issues. Our culture editor considers Sally Rooney's latest work finding great fiction in a narrower focus on the timeless topics of love and growing up. But first... In El Salvador today, a world first, Bitcoin becomes legal tender. It's a personal campaign for President Nayib Bukele, who says the move will help both economic development and inclusion of the country's unbanked. This will generate jobs and help provide financial inclusion to thousands outside the formal economy. That will take some convincing. Both the World Bank and the IMF have warned against the move, worrying about economic stability and the cryptocurrency's notorious environmental costs. Many Salvadorans aren't keen either and have protested against the policy. And when Nelson Raúda, who writes about El Salvador for The Economist, went out in the capital, San Salvador, he found plenty of people who simply weren't ready. Store owner Carolina Zavala said she wasn't preparing for what's being called B-Day because she doesn't understand it. She reckons she'll eventually catch up, as she did 20 years ago, when the country made the U.S. dollar the official currency. Some, though, are embracing the change. In the town of Antiguo Cuscatlan, just outside San Salvador, a store run by Adela Avendaño has been taking Bitcoin for months, selling mostly to foreigners. So she walked Nelson through a purchase. The Economist's Wall Street correspondent, Alice Fullwood, says it's a bold experiment from a millennial leader with a growing reputation, both good and bad, for shaking things up. Three months ago, the president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, announced at a Bitcoin conference in Miami that El Salvador was in the process of writing a law that would mean that Bitcoin was accepted as legal tender. We didn't take care of the beautiful idea that we create our own future, that we as humanity can do almost anything that we imagine. I believe Bitcoin could be one of these ideas. That is why next week, I will send to Congress a bill that will make Bitcoin a legal tender in El Salvador. 
Since then, there has just been a whirlwind of activity. That law was written and passed just three days later by the legislature in El Salvador. And it's a pretty stringent law. It says not only is Bitcoin legal tender and is accepted for taxes and in settlement of debts, but also uh, the law is going to make businesses in El Salvador accept Bitcoin as payment for goods or services. So why has El Salvador decided to, to do this, to make Bitcoin legal tender? The president has put forward a few reasons why he thinks that adopting Bitcoin as legal tender might be a good move for El Salvador. First, it could help the country win foreign investment. It might sort of lure in deep-pocketed crypto investors. He's also argued that it might reduce transaction costs broadly in El Salvador's financial economy. So, for instance, there is a diaspora of around 2 million Salvadorans who live overseas, and they send remittances back to El Salvador worth about 20% of GDP each year. And the current way that they do that, using cross-border bank transfers, are slow and expensive. Moving Bitcoin from wallet to wallet could reduce the costs of those transactions. And lastly, a lot of Salvadorans are sort of not financially included. Um, Very few of them have bank accounts. Many of them are very poor and sort of can't afford traditional financial services. So there is an argument that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency adoption might help make those things easier easier for those who can get their heads around it, I guess. How does this actually work in practice? In order to use Bitcoin as their method of payment, Salvadorans will have to download a digital wallet. The El Salvadorian government has created its own. It's called Chivo, which is slang for cool. And if you download that, you'll get $30 worth of free Bitcoin to encourage people to use it um, if you download it sort of soon. That will be an online app on your phone. And then you need to fund that with Bitcoin. And there are a couple of ways you could do that. Either you can use sort of one of the big cryptocurrency exchanges, or they've rolled out about 200 Bitcoin cash machines across the country. And basically, you can go up to one of these machines and you can deposit dollars into it. And then you either key in the address for your Bitcoin wallet, or you sort of scan a QR code. And that will sort of upload those dollars, convert them into Bitcoin and put them in your wallet. And you can then use those Bitcoins at businesses uh, to carry out transactions. And so is is everybody on, on board with this move? There is quite a lot of opposition to the adoption of Bitcoin. So for locals who might have to use it, many of them are fearful of its volatility. A lot of them don't really understand what it is or why they would want to use it. And if you zoom out to the bigger picture, El Salvador seems to be becoming sort of increasingly undemocratic and authoritarian. Um, and some critics say that this sort of measure is a distraction from all of these sort of more nefarious things that are going on. For instance, the president has sacked sort of many of the senior judges in El Salvador, and he's now got the highest court to approve him running for a second term as El Salvador's president, which is technically unconstitutional. And all of this has led to some instability in the country. So there have been recent protests in the capital city, San Salvador, which have demonstrated a sort of lack of confidence among citizens, many of whom are unfamiliar with Bitcoin and and sort of don't really want to use it. And in any case, it's a grand financial experiment here. How how has the, the rest of the financial world viewed it? The response from the international community, with the exception of the sort of crypto crowd, has been quite sceptical and in general opposed. Both the World Bank and the IMF are opposed. 
the World Bank refused to help the president roll out the scheme, saying that it sort of risked uh, macro instability, it sort of potentially would uh, increase the risk of the sort of black economy growing because, you know, Bitcoin is sort of less easy to trace than sort of traditional financial uh, payments. The IMF is also opposed for the same reasons. It sort of says that it's, it's you know, not transparent, uh, it's volatile, it risks macro instability, etc. Moody's, the sort of big ratings agency, has also downgraded uh, El Salvador's debt rating mainly on the basis of this sort of law introducing this new element of volatility into tax revenues. So what's what's your view? In the big picture, do you think this will work? I mean, in the short term, it seems as though sort of most businesses really just aren't ready for this. And so I imagine people might try to use it and they might be frustrated in those attempts. But as people become more accustomed to it, it may be more widely accepted. Most of the businesses on the ground who are readying themselves to accept it say that if they do do that, they're not going to start using it as what people call the unit of account. So they might be willing to accept payment in Bitcoin and then immediately convert it back into dollars. So the question of will this experiment be a success in terms of will you be able to go and pay for things in Bitcoin in El Salvador? I think you probably will over time, even if it's a bit more difficult in the beginning. The grand question of whether this will ultimately be a success on any of the sort of big metrics that you might care about, does the, the grey economy boom? Does it help reduce remittance costs? Does it help lure in foreign investment? I mean, you're obviously not going to have any sense of whether or not it's been a success on any of those questions for quite some time. Thanks very much for joining us, Alice. Thank you, Jason. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Parents just want what's best for their children and will go to some lengths to get it. In some countries, that's led to a cycle of ever-increasing educational one-upmanship. All that after-school tutoring, those extracurricular activities, they dominate the lives of parents and children. And some governments are treating that as cause for concern. As Chinese media reporting a crackdown on education technology by the Chinese government, they would ban... Uh, They have suspended classes and aren't really sure when they're going to resume, and that's because of the regulatory crackdown. That urge to achieve, it has its costs. But I think those arms races are particularly ferocious in, in East Asia, in Japan, South Korea, now China. Simon Cox is a senior economics writer for The Economist. These are countries where there's a strong meritocratic ethic, there's a strong value placed on education. There's also a high-stakes testing that takes place across the whole country, in particular the tests that determine what universities you get into. And so given that, there's a tremendous demand for attempts to get ahead educationally. And as a result, there's this whole shadow education industry, as it's called, Uh, private tutors, online technological companies offering tutoring. By one estimate, in China's cities, pupils spend over 10 hours a week on this kind of after-school tuition. This is tremendously stressful, it's costly, and it's attracted the ire of China's government and and South Korea's government, and they've all been trying uh, to limit this kind of shadow education industry. 
But pressures to succeed at exams and doing after-school tutoring and the like isn't limited to East Asian countries. Why is it so acute in those countries? People often look at the structure of the education system, these high-stakes exams, but I think it's deeper than that, actually. I think in countries like uh, South Korea and China, there's quite a, a narrow definition of success. There are quite a limited number of secure, good, prestigious careers in slightly more egalitarian societies, you think in particular of parts of Western Europe, it seems like there are more ways to be successful and there are probably lower stakes to failure as well. So I think the narrow definition of success and the particular fear of failure does add an extra uh, level of severity to this arms race in East Asia. How to limit it, though, when people are so deeply engaged in these kinds of arms races? So some of their attempts to limit it are quite clumsy, quite draconian. South Korea, for example, has a 10 p.m. curfew on cramming schools. Inspectors would wander the neighborhoods looking to see if schools had their lights on. And in China recently, the government said that after-school tutoring firms had to register as non-profit entities. They couldn't seek profits, they couldn't list on the stock market, they couldn't raise foreign capital. This had a particularly stark effect on a lot of edtech companies that recently had attracted great deal of foreign capital and a great deal of enthusiasm from investors. This has caught everyone by surprise, but perhaps it shouldn't have because uh, China's leader, Xi Jinping, has been signaling for some time his uh, disapproval of the role that profit-seeking and private enterprise is playing in education, which he feels should be a non-profit, government-led endeavor. Uh, And also there's a great concern in China that all of these pressures on child-rearing are leading to fewer children. Families just simply can't afford to have more than one child, and that obviously has implications for China's future and its attempt to rejuvenate China. But what about parents who who feel now very invested in these kinds of efforts and, and, and funding all the tutoring and so on? What do they want? Parents are quite divided. Certainly this tutoring is costly to them, it's stressful, but for some parents they feel it's their only way to get even with wealthier families who can afford to have tutors come to their home privately. And at least these edtech firms give people a more accessible, cheaper version, a way to access the best tutors nationally. There have been attempts to introduce a little bit more flexibility in how students are evaluated, but that hasn't been terribly popular with parents. And if you broaden the criteria on which students are evaluated, in some ways you just make this obstacle course broader and you give especially wealthier parents uh, more avenues in which they can uh, help their children. Some parents think the high stakes exams are at least meritocratic. It's uh, a way in which you can get into university even if you don't have any connections. So whilst they're very stressful, at least the stress is sort of evenly distributed. Well, what evidence is there that all that extra studying leads to better students, better academic outcomes? If you look at surveys of shadow education around the world, uh, there actually isn't all that much of it in some places like Norway and Sweden. And these are countries that have very good educational results. So shadow education isn't necessary to produce well-educated children. And I think in those societies, there is obviously a much stronger safety net, a much more equal distribution of income. So perhaps the drive to get ahead is less compelling. So what's the solution then for this arms race in countries like China, do you think? Is it simply doing away with the exams that add all that pressure? I don't think it's that simple. I think that Obviously, the first best solution is to achieve a more egalitarian society in which um, the costs of failure are lower. But until you get there, perhaps you need to emphasize actually a little bit more differentiation in education. You could perhaps have a stronger vocational educational system, uh, which means a different way for children uh, to succeed and to thrive. 
Uh, you could perhaps have fewer tests, perhaps have tests a little bit earlier. If you see education essentially as a filter, if you see it as a way of signaling underlying ability, if you see it as an obstacle course, then in a way what you want is an obstacle course that's no longer than necessary, that's no more frequent than necessary, and it seems pointless prolonging of the torture to have quite so many tests quite so far into a student's career. In some ways, competitiveness is intrinsic to education. Education will always be something of an arms race. But if you have uh, multiple plural definitions of success, that might mean that these uh, races are somewhat less uh, burdensome on parents and children alike. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Today, the third novel by Sally Rooney, called Beautiful World, Where Are You?, is released in Britain and America. Her first, Conversations with Friends, caught critics' attention, and the television adaptation of the second, Normal People, was the BBC's most streamed series of 2020. You were saying the other day that you like me. By the photocopier, you said it. It followed the relationship of Connell and Marianne, from their days in school to time in university and adulthood. It'd be awkward in school if something happened with us. No one would have to know. Ms. Rooney is often referred to as the first great millennial author, and her third book is prompting big questions about what counts in this millennium as serious fiction. Sally Rooney is a great bard of 21st century relationships. Andrew Miller is The Economist's culture editor and author of our new column, Backstory. She writes about young people at school and university and in the years thereafter. She writes about friendship and romance and the slightly kind of hazy boundary between the two. People coming of age and negotiating the slightly daunting adult world. Her characters spend a lot of time navel-gazing, in other words, and indeed gazing at each other's navels. And in this respect, it's kind of at odds with a lot of successful, prize-winning, anyway, contemporary literary fiction. How so? At odds in what way? These days, a lot of serious authors, or at least authors who want to be taken seriously, tend to write about big-picture issues, you know, political issues, whether it's climate change or civil wars or immigration. And I think recently the novel has taken this political turn where authors feel obliged, and partly because of the information universe today and we all live in, where we now have CNN and the internet and you can't turn off what's happening in the world. And so the inclination is to let it into the fiction because not doing so can seem like a, a moral failure on the part of you know, either the characters or the author or both. And politics does intrude in Sally Rooney's books. I mean, she is herself an avowed Marxist and her characters do talk about politics and class features and money. But she's above all a domestic writer. She writes about feelings and relationships. So why do you think Ms. Rooney chooses to buck the trend then? I don't know if it's a choice exactly. In the sense, I think all authors can only write, you know, the novels they can write. But I think it's fair to say that Miss Rooney herself has some qualms about the kind of fiction that she writes. And actually, in this latest novel, Miss Rooney's characters voice some of these opinions themselves. One of them is a novelist who, in her biography, resembles the author of the novel. And she and her best friend debate the value of fiction and whether fiction really has much purpose in the 21st century. And you know, she says at one point, do the protagonists break up or stay together in this world? What does it matter? And that's obviously a startling 
sentiment to encounter in a novel, which is about, you know, whether the protagonists are going to break up or stay together. And what's your view on that question, on, on whether it matters? I think partly these criticisms of Sally Rooney's fiction as being parochial and narrow are a misunderstanding and, and misrepresentation of what the English novel is and, and always has been. Daniel Defoe kind of invented it by accident at the beginning of the 18th century. And in contrast to you know, epic poetry and previous literary forms that dwelled on the fate of nations, you know, the founding of cities and grand heroes, this was an art form that was populated by ordinary recognisable people. And ordinary people have, have often made for the best fiction in English. And so the author of Sally Rooney's most reminds me of is, is Jane Austen, who similarly builds her plots around young people, young people in their 20s, falling in love and miscommunication and will they, won't they? And, and Sally Rooney's books are very reminiscent of that, only it has to be said with lots and lots of extra sex. And so aside from the, these grand questions, you think her, her fiction meets that criterion of great fiction? My own personal view is that she doesn't need to worry about this, the author. Every work of art should be judged on, you know, what it is and what it's trying to do and not on what it isn't. I mean, there's no point criticising an apple for not being an orange. And her books are these kind of books. They could address huge political questions, although that's very hard for a novel to do without it getting in the way of the story. They can wow you with the electricity of their language or the subtlety of their characterization and books can be successful and indeed even be great in a wide variety of ways and I think in their own terms Sally Rooney's books succeed more even than she herself is willing to acknowledge. Andrew thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. This is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.